This is the Idea Time Show, Idea Time Show with Dr. Joe North, helping facilitators expand their creativity, confidence, and impact through the power of innovation in action. Gain confidence as a facilitator, confidence with the technology, and confidence with your content and event design. Tune in every week for practical tips, strategies and interviews that will accelerate your personal and business success. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe North. Hi there, welcome to this edition of the Idea Time Show. It's all about how to be a change maker in business. So the purpose of the show this week is to give you some tools, techniques and confidence to develop, communicate and influence and make your great business ideas happen so that you are a change maker. If you've got great things, great transformational agendas that you want to do in your business, in your organization, then this is a really great show to listen to. So let's get started. Our agenda is, I'm gonna start off by talking about something called white square thinking. I don't know if you've come across white square thinking before, but I'll explain all about it and see if you have experienced doing any of that white square thinking yourself. We're then going to move on and think about what keeps people stuck. And I'm going to share some science-based evidence around what keeps people stuck so that then by understanding that, we know how we can lead people in the change moving forward. We'll be thinking about making your big ideas take off and launching your big idea and then getting into some behavioural economics, how we really make decisions. Because as humans, we're very interesting creatures. We're not always logical and rational, in fact, far from it. So understanding how the brain works and what's actually going on for us when we're making a decision can really help us when we're leading change because we can understand a little bit better what's going on for other people. We'll be looking at idea bulletproofing and making sure that your change is robust and well considered before you go ahead. And then also it's important to make sure that everything stacks up. So finally, we'll be talking about making the case for your business change, for your transformation. So this is for you if you are an innovator, if you're a facilitator, maybe you train people in leadership, maybe you train people in change management, you could be an entrepreneur, but we're all change makers. You know, as leaders in our field, we're all change making all the time for the better. So I really hope you enjoy this show. Now, I promised you a story around white square thinking. So what is white square thinking? Well, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but so the myth or the true story goes, whichever way you look at it, is that if you imagine a parade ground where trainee soldiers practice their marching and then they do their display as they're about to pass out as fully-fledged soldiers. And in this parade ground, it was being used to give a display to veteran soldiers to bring them back so they could reminisce, watch the display, and and get back to where they trained themselves in years gone by. So before this event had started, one of the veterans went into the middle of the parade ground and started inspecting it and prodding the ground with his stick. And when he was asked what he was doing and if he was okay and what it was all about, the veteran soldier said, I'm just looking at this on the floor because it used to be my job to paint all the white lines and the markings on the floor of the parade ground. 
and I actually spilt some paint one day and just made a mess. So what I did was I painted it into a square to make it look as if it should be there. And looking at this now, you've still been painting that square ever since I was a young trainee here in this very place. And you've been painting the same square, even though it has no purpose. But it's nice to see that the square is here. So that's what white square thinking is. It's about things that we do, that we do just because you know, we've always done them. Things that we have or things that we use just because they're there, rather than thinking, what is the purpose of this? And maybe challenging that and doing things differently. And that's the really interesting thing about change is that sometimes we can be so used to our environment, we can be so used to our routine that we don't see the possibilities around us. So when you're thinking about leading change, it's really important to you know, respect that, I think, in, in other people, but work with it and help them move forward. And, and also make sure that you're moving forward as well in your own thinking and that you haven't got any white square thinking going on. If you've got any examples of white square thinking, either in your own organisation or in organisations you've come across, then let me know. Have you heard that story before? I'd also be interested to know that too. It's not just about white square thinking because you know, in the environment and habit, but there are lots of other things that keep people stuck. And as I'm going through these, maybe think about your own experience. What keeps you stuck? What do you think keeps, you know, if you're working with people that are finding it really difficult to change or take on new ways of doing things, what do you think it is that's keeping them stuck? Because if you understand that, then you can start to think about what are the strategies that you can use to get them unstuck? Well, there's some very good evidence that what keeps us stuck is a number of things. Firstly, it's inertia. We actually use, it's ironic, we use a lot of energy keeping us where we are right now. And we have sort of a whole system as humans, which is called homeostasis, or the whole sort of ethos that we are designed to stay where we are, to keep our temperature even, to keep us in you know, a nice sense of routine and security and so on, and just keep everything ticking over as it should. So that can spill over into our attitude and our approach to change, which is energy spent on staying still, which is fascinating, isn't it, when you think about it? I love all this stuff, as you could probably tell. But also, change is very tiring and energy sapping for the mind in a way. Uh, Some people might say, yeah, change is refreshing, but I'll come on to that in a second. But change means that we've got to rethink things. We've got to reimagine and work out different ways of doing things. And because our brain is such a large energy consumer in our body, it uses a lot of glucose. We'd rather sort of not expend energy where we don't have to. There's also an element of self-preservation in that, of course, as well, because the brain wants to keep us safe. That's its primary function. It wants to stop us getting killed, essentially, you know, from an evolutionary point of view. So... The brain knows that what we were doing before hasn't harmed us so far and therefore sometimes it's a little bit reluctant to let us go into new territory and try new things. So sometimes it's easier to stay where we are, it feels less effort to stay where we are and sometimes because we know our environment, we know our routine, it can be more challenging to change. So again, things for you to consider as a change maker. And as I say, I'm going to give you some strategies to overcome all of these as we go through. The other reason it's challenging um, for people to change and people resist change is because 
the more embedded their thought patterns, the more embedded their habits, the stronger the neural pathways in the brain. So we have trillions of neurons, more than there are stars in the Milky Way. And then the neurons in our brain are connecting the whole time, sharing information, connecting, that's our thoughts, our ideas, our processes, and so on. And the more we have a repeated way of doing things, the more we think the same way, the more strongly connected those neural pathways are. So, and it's like having a path, you know, the more you go up and down that path, the more worn that path is going to become. So when people say, I'm in a bit of a rut, they are actually in a bit of a rut, you know, literally almost from a neuron point of view. So those people are quite embedded in how they do things and we need to nudge them out of that and sort of do some positive disruption to get them thinking differently. Actually, that's what innovation events are all about. It's about disrupting the way that people are thinking so they can generate new ideas and get new outputs from it as well. The good news is, is that brains have neuroplasticity. They have the ability to develop in different areas and strengthen other connections as well. These habits and things can all be overcome. They might take a bit of work. They might take a bit of persistence, but they're definitely not there permanently. They can indeed be overcome, developed or kept and just enhanced with other types of thinking as well. The other thing I wanted to share with you about why people sometimes get stuck where they are is something called the Ikea effect and I don't know if you've heard of the Ikea effect that's a proper term and it means that we always prefer something that we have contributed towards building or that we've built ourselves. you might have heard also the expression not invented here syndrome so if we have had a part in the change we're more likely to want to you know see that change through and and make sure it happens whereas if the change is done to us or if we perceive that somebody else is subjecting us to the change and that we don't have any control or we're not empowered in any way then we'll resist that change or it won't feel as comfortable or as positive for us so the thing to do here is to really get people engaged in the change as early as you can and let people know that their opinions count, that they can influence it, and that they can be part of designing the change. I think that's probably one of the most positive things that you can do. Right from the beginning, it'll make your change process so much easier. And you know, there's a paradox, because although I'm talking about resistance to change and why people get stuck, and we do get stuck, and I get stuck sometimes, just like anybody else, and I'm sure you get stuck too, is that um, as humans, we actually do need certainty, and that's why we resist change. But at the same time, we do need uncertainty and variety as well. We need some adventure. We need some new stimulus. We're not the sorts of creatures that can just stay as we are permanently all the time. And this is really interesting because as change makers ourselves, sometimes we can experience a tension, which is we want to do something. You know, we really want to give it a go, but we're sort of talking ourselves out of it. We're holding ourselves back. And really, it's about establishing, you know, is that an opportunity? Is that something we should really go for and not talk ourselves out of it, but listen to some of the risks and the concerns we have so that we can overcome them? But I think that's really interesting that we need both certainty and uncertainty and that that causes a dilemma for us from time to time. So making your big idea take off 
think about why it is you're doing it in the first place. And I don't mean why the rational reason. I mean, why? What's the motivational purpose for your change? As Simon Sinek, and, and do watch the Start With Why video from Simon Sinek, also his book, Start With Why. If you're not familiar with it, I'm sure you probably are. But what Simon Sinek says is that often organisations and people start with what they want to do and then think about how they're going to do it, which is a very rational approach, instead of actually starting with why. And he actually uses the example of Apple and how Apple wants to think differently so that what we get from Apple is very distinctive and very successful because they started with why. And if Apple had started with what, they'd just be making phones and computers like any other standard tech provider. So start with why. A big idea needs a change maker. And if you want to be a great change maker, and you are a great change maker, I'm sure, the key qualities that you have are belief and skill. Belief in your why, belief in that purpose that we've just been talking about, that central motivational core reason for doing something. Believe in your vision that it can be done. You've got to believe that this is possible. You might not know how to do it. It might be a super stretch, reachy, aspirational goal, but you've got to have a belief that it can be done and you've got to believe in yourself. And it's a very special sort of belief, which is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is a sort of self-confidence that is that you know you can achieve, you know that you can overcome difficulties, you know that you'll work it out. Even if you don't know how to achieve something yet, you know that you will work out how to achieve that thing. So that self-belief is really key. And that's come through super strongly in my own research into successful entrepreneurs and from other research as well. So it's been echoed elsewhere. And the skills you need, the multiple, but the key ones all come back to influencing and problem solving skills. Influencing because you'll need to take people with you, you'll need to be a great communicator, you'll need to listen well, and you'll need to sort of adapt and shape as your change develops. You'll need problem solving skills because the very nature of change means that you're doing something new, you're doing something different, and you'll need to work it out when things don't go to plan because they won't, and that's natural and that's normal. And that's where the self-efficacy element helps too. Let's move on then to behavioural economics and how we really make decisions. Now what behavioural economics is about is recognising that 95% of the decisions we make are subconscious. So for instance if we say we choose a particular brand then we're often choosing that brand and we'll rationalise that and say because it's good value for money, it works better than any of the others, it performs better. But actually research shows, and particularly research from Professor Zaltman of Harvard University, that we don't actually investigate those other brands. We don't know how much they are. We don't know if they perform better. Very few of us just say, right, I'm going to buy some new face cream. I'm going to test three products. I'm going to rank their performance, look at how much they cost, and then make a rational decision on which ones to buy. Who does that? I mean, there are, of course, review sites and product comparison magazines and things like that. And yes, we might read some of those. But actually, when we're making a decision, we're shortcutting those decisions based on the other judgments that we make. 
So 95% of decisions are subconscious and this is where behavioural economics comes in. It then means that we need to focus more on the non-conscious decision-making processes, the context of the behaviour that we display, which are the norms, and actually focus on behaviour rather than making people aware of stuff or thinking about getting a change in attitude. So just communicating things and giving people information isn't enough. Just really trying to change somebody's attitude isn't enough. If you want to drive true transformation and change, it's actually also super important that we drive changes in behaviour and work at that level. Because sometimes people's intentions and attitudes, and even though they know something, they might do something completely different. And if you think about it, you know this for yourself, because this might not be your Achilles heel personally, but there are people who watch too much TV, even though they know they could be doing more productive things. There are people like me who should exercise more. We know we should. So knowing something is very different and having an attitude of wanting to and intending to is very different from actually putting your trainers on, lacing them up and heading out the door. So where we really need to be targeting is getting that behavioural change which will drive the transformation. So some ways we can do that is to really understand what's going on for us when we're making decisions because as, as humans because then you can think about how you're going to present some of the information to do with the change, how you're going to influence and bring people along with you. So I've picked a handful of my favourite biases and heuristics from behavioural economics, and we're going to have a look at a few of them. So the first one is framing bias. And Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner, and one of the experiments he did was to ask people to pick which doctor they would prefer. The first option was a doctor. Out of 100 patients who had this operation, 90 are still alive even after five years. So would you pick that doctor or would you pick this doctor? Out of 100 patients who had this operation, 10 were dead before the end of five years. So the difference between the two doctors is that after five years, 90 are still alive. And in the second option, 10 were dead and both of them are out of 100 patients. So the results are actually the same. And surprisingly or unsurprisingly, depending on your point of view, most people chose the first doctor, the one who had 90 patients still alive, even after five years. And it's the same information, it's just how it's framed. And framing means positioned. So the first one was positively framed, the second one was negatively framed. So you can use positive or negative framing when you're looking to influence, depending on what is the outcome that you're aiming to drive. This is particularly useful if you're using statistics to demonstrate a point. And please do this, obviously, I'm talking about doing it with integrity. I'm not talking about misleading anybody or manipulating anybody. I'm still talking about operating with integrity, being transparent and being truthful, but just thinking about how you put things and how you phrase things is a useful thing to consider. The second thing that's interesting is that we have a tendency 
to prefer benefits that we're going to get in the short term to benefits that we're going to get in the longer term. And this is one of the reasons why some of the financial services global companies are finding it challenging to sell to people in their 20s, 30s, early 40s to sell pensions to those groups of people because they're focused on right now and retirement seems such a long way away. They're thinking about now rather than the future. What you can do when you're talking about your own change is to make sure that if you're promising things or you're hoping for things, your vision is to achieve something in the future, that you also build in some quick wins for people so that people can see some very early benefits. They're not having to wait till far into the future. And this is true. You know, there's a famous experiment where children were offered one marshmallow. They could eat it now, but if they wait a little while, they might get two marshmallows. And many children just out for the one marshmallow there and then and didn't want to wait. The point is, is that we like quick wins. So when you are looking at transformational change, make sure there are some quick wins for the people involved, as well as the long term vision and the long term benefits. We also prefer to prevent loss than achieve gain. So once we've had something and experienced something, we miss it more and we regret that we've lost it. Avoiding loss is sometimes a bigger motivator than achieving something that we don't have. There's also some studies that show that we feel more disappointed when we lose £10 of money or $10 than if we were to get $10 that we weren't expecting. It's disproportionately negative versus the positive feeling of actually gaining that $10. So some of the things that you can do when you get people to make a public commitment so that there is a website called Stick S-T-I-C-K-K, for instance, which is all about making a public commitment so that people sign up to that to make themselves follow through on their promises to themselves because they're committing and pledging publicly. So you could ask people to sign up for things, to commit to things and publish, you know, with their permission, very, you know, very openly with what you're asking people to get on board and be part of the change and contribute to it. And that works really, really well. The other bias that I think is really fascinating is confirmation bias. There's a cartoon by the Decision Lab has one person saying, did you read my paper on confirmation bias? And the other person says, yes, but it only proved what I already knew. And that's a brilliant summary of what confirmation bias is all about. So we look for things subconsciously that corroborate, that validate the point of view that we already have. And this is where social media actually works so brilliantly as a concept because What the algorithm for Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and all those other ones is doing is really working out what we like, really working out what our point of view is and our paradigm of the world and then presenting us with things that are consistent with that because the social media algorithms really do understand confirmation bias. I think it's a clever thing. I don't think it's a good thing particularly because I think the more difference we're exposed to the more diversity of opinion and point of view and lifestyles and all of those sorts of things the more tolerant we become of each other the more understanding and the wider our perspective so I think it's clever but I'm not necessarily thinking it's a a great thing this is true of many of us we see things and we, we form an opinion and then 
we see other things that subconsciously that validate that opinion. Again, there have been studies done with recruitment and job interviews and candidates. If people take a liking to a candidate really early on in the first few seconds, unless that candidate does something really significant, then the confirmation bias we have means that we're, we're sort of validating that this could be a really good choice of candidate all the way through the interview. Likewise, if a candidate seems to be not a good fit and we're not keen on that candidate, they don't seem right for us. Again, we pick out the evidence that supports the point of view that we initially formed. And of course, this is really important to be aware of because we don't want to prejudice anybody's opportunities. We don't want to have unfair decision making and so on. So it's fascinating, but also there's a watch out here and that we really do need to look out for it and make sure that we're being completely you know, fair and right in what we're doing and that we're doing things in the right way. Okay, and the availability heuristic. I like the illustration that you can find on James Clear's website. You imagine a big sort of circle that says what actually happens in the world, which is loads of stuff is going on in the world the whole time. And then in that huge circle, there's a tiny little circle or a dot that says, and this is what's covered in the news. And what we do is we focus on what's covered in the news because that's the stuff we're hearing about all the time. It's accessible to us. And we're hearing it repeatedly as well, particularly with 24-hour news coverage on our phones. So just because something is available and recent and front of mind for us doesn't necessarily mean that it's a true priority. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But how you can use this helpfully is if you've got a change coming, you know that there's a change in the future that you're, you know, an idea that you're looking to propose, something that you're aiming to to land and you hope it really takes off is you can start to prepare the ground for that by talking about it making people warm to the idea by frequency of conversation so that when you actually go and and share your ideas for change more fully when you fully develop them then the ground is laid and people will be more receptive because they've heard more about it it's not come out of the blue so you can use this availability heuristic to your, you know, to your benefit in a good way, but it also helps them too because it means they've had time to be thinking about it and they're more ready to receive the information that you're going to share with them as well. So they're heuristics and biases. So a bias is a, a subconscious leaning in a certain direction to take certain decisions. A heuristic is a mental shortcut which just helps us make decisions faster because we're processing information and making decisions all the time. But we're also influenced by norms and two types of norm in particular. So what we see other people doing and what we think they think we should do. So we observe people doing things and we're influenced. We think, you know, should we be like that or should we do the same as that? Should we not do that? And so on. The other sort of norm is what we think they think we should do is really about our view on what we think other people's expectations of us are. And that might be correct or incorrect. They may or may not have those expectations. It's what we think they're expecting that counts. And those things influence us. And we conform to those norms in different ways. We conform by sometimes just by complying and doing what we think is expected. And I really love the work of Martha Beck, who's, you know, about don't just go with the norm, 
challenge that. You don't have to do the things that other people are doing just because that's expected or that's the way it's done around here. Do what's right for you. We sometimes have self-expression. We join communities and groups and associate ourselves with people whose norms we identify with. Sometimes we want to rebel. I was actually a goth in the the 1980s when I was in my teenage years and I thought I was being really rebellious but all I was doing was of course was joining another group and having another norm identity. We are social creatures and things like the competition heuristic can help us too because when we understand how other people are doing we then use it as a benchmark to see how we're doing ourselves and we want to do as well as other people on things that matter to us and so therefore you can use sharing information about how other people are doing again with integrity and with permission and openly and all of those things that goes without saying because that will help drive change as well so an example of that is in Cape Town where water shortages are particularly severe the local water supply company shows maps with water usage by each house And when water's short, you don't want to be on the map as being the house that's using too much water, do you? So, of course, that's something that drives positive change. And a similar thing, actually, in the United States, multiple studies have found that giving customers feedback on how their water consumption compares to their neighbours also drove reductions in consumption too. So just knowing how we're doing against our peers are doing can drive change. So sharing that sort of information, again, with the right permissions and in the right way really helps. Examples of using social proof to drive change are the nudge used by HMRC, which in the United Kingdom in Britain is the tax office. And they published a campaign which said nine out of 10 people in the UK pay their tax on time. And using that message, they got 210 million more pounds worth of tax payments in above and beyond what was paid before because saying nine out of 10 people pay their tax on time. And similarly, and you'll have seen this when you've traveled in hotels and things, by putting a notice that says nearly three quarters of hotel guests choose to reuse their towels each day, that cuts the number of replaced towels by 17%. And these things have been studied, you know, and tracked through. So these things actually work. And you can think about how you use these things in your own messaging for your own change that you want to drive. And the other thing I'd say is the more personally relevant or local the message is when you're doing these comparisons and benchmarks, the better. So use your local town, community, organisation, team, business, whatever it is. And nudges work really, really well too. So nudges are interesting because they're just small tweaks to the environment that make the desired behaviour change really, really easy. It's that thing, you know, if you put your trainers by the door before you go to bed, then you just get up, put them on and off you go. You know, it's a little nudge to make it easier to get up and exercise. There is in Sweden a staircase next to an escalator and the steps are piano keys so that people take the steps instead of the escalator. But what they do is they also go up and down the staircase because they can play tunes on the staircase piano and they have a lot of fun with it as well which of course is very good for well-being so this piano staircase is a little nudge 
to get people off the escalator and onto the stairs. So lots of different things are all around us and when you start to look for these they're very prolific but what you can do if you want people to do things differently is you can do this online you can create an online or a physical environment where it makes delivering that change a lot more easy and a good choice to make now when you've got your idea for change and you're thinking about how you're going to influence it's really important to bulletproof it and just very briefly and I've got all of these resources as templates if you'd like them and head over to www.bigbangpartnership.co.uk slash resources and you can fill your boots with all sorts of free resources and these are there for you if you want to download them but work through the top risks know what the top risks are, how likely they are, what the impact would be and what actions you could put in place to reduce the impact of those risks and do the same for opportunities. How likely are they? What would the impact of that opportunity be and how you could turn an opportunity into an even bigger, more sustainable opportunity too. So think those through and also think about who are the different stakeholders involved in the change so the stakeholder is anyone who the change will affect and what I like to do is get every individual out onto a sticky note and just write their name their initials or their role and then put them on a two by two matrix so on one axis I'd have importance of support from low to high and on a vertical axis I'd have level of support from low to high and I'd put the sticky note on that grid where I think each person would sit and then if there are people who have a high importance of, of support and high level of support I think how might well, what's my strategy going to be to keep them there if someone is really important for the change initiative you know has a, a medium or low level of support then I'll challenge myself to think what is the strategy I'm going to use to engage them in the process and to get them involved so that they begin to support this change. So really thinking through and having a strategic plan for how you're going to engage and influence and move forward your stakeholders is absolutely key. Now, we've talked about you've got your big ideas. Sometimes there's a lot of resistance to just change in general, but using some good behavioral economics techniques and really being a good influencer thinking through your risks and opportunities and how you're going to engage your stakeholders that's all really important stuff and remember that you still need to make the case the reason for your change even though you've got you know you're driven by a really compelling purpose and it's very motivational it all still needs to stack up logically as well so we're not saying don't be logical in fact far from it you need to do both you need to appeal to the emotion the feeling the motivation the purpose and connect with people on that level and it needs to make good sense logical sense too remember that when you're influencing you are asking them to trust you in coming along on that journey with you so really think about trust I've done a video on the trust equation which you can see on my YouTube channel. It's a 60 second video that really breaks down the core ingredients of trust and explains them. But present your case with credibility, do your homework, really know your stuff 
with reliability. Make sure that people know they can count on you to deliver this change and that your track record uh, gives evidence that you can too. Be really open about and authentic with what you're trying to do and make sure that from a self-orientation point of view, which is one of the ingredients of the trust equation, that you are considering other people's needs and wants just as much as you're considering your own and you're aiming to get the best for everybody, you know, the best outcome all round. It's not just about completely what you want. It's about doing the best for everybody who is involved collectively so that everybody wins in some way. And you'll need to think about how you're influencing as well. So it's really important to use push style influencing which really means that you are direct, you are clear about your aspirations, your expectations and how you think it might work. And you, you, know, you give your views and opinions, but you're also doing pull influencing, which is listening to others, giving them your full attention, really understanding their point of view, building on common ground and, you know, and sharing and being very, very open with each other as well. So if you can get that combination right, you will also help with building trust and you'll get a better outcome all around and your change is more likely to be successful. And just really, you know, think about how you can influence and how you're influenced yourself and think about, you know, just because you're influenced in a certain way doesn't mean that others will be influenced similarly. So what you really need to do is to devise an influencing approach that works for every person that you're working with uh, to make this happen. So there are some universal principles of influencing, which I quite like by Robert Cialdini. You know, you can use things like social proof to show where this type of change has worked elsewhere and how beneficial it's been. You can use authority, which is one of the six universal principles of influencing show that there is some expert work done, that you've done your homework, that you've consulted with the right people and that you've brought in the right expertise to make this happen, that it's consistent with the direction that you're aiming to go and it's consistent with the whole sort of strategic vision that you've got overall, that you recognise and appreciate people, that you know even if someone in the change process has got a different view from you, they're more likely to listen if you show your appreciation for them. If you think about it, do you really take people's views on board if you don't feel they're listening to you? It's really important to have that two-way dialogue, that real listening happening so that you can take people along the change with you. And just, you know, really use a, a toolkit of different tools because different people have different preferences. So some people like a lot of data, some people work on feeling and intuition There's no right or wrong. There's only different approaches. You'll need to adapt your own influencing style throughout the change process accordingly. Use visuals. Some people like detail. Others just want to know what the big picture is. So you need to be able to do both. You need to be able to get people to really imagine the future vision as well as having a respect for the journey and the history that people have had so far. Give space for interaction and discussion because extroverts really enjoy thinking out loud, having conversation and bouncing ideas around, whereas reflectors 
prefer to spend a bit more time thinking things through and having a bit more peace and quiet in order to do that. So really it's about being really flexible with how you influence all the way through the change that you're making because that will give you the very best relationships, input, connection and support and behaviour change from people who count. And then make the case as well, you know, make sure it all stacks up, make sure that you've you've got a really clear purpose, you can communicate and summarise it super clearly, that there is an absolute need for the change and that it will be very beneficial. If you're doing it for competitive reasons, then then show how that's going to help in a competitive situation. Make sure you explore different options and that you make it attractive. You've done your key risk uh, opportunity and mitigation work. The business case, the financials, all of that is in place and that you know what the first steps are and you've got a roadmap for your change. So that's it from me. There's quite a lot of content there and I can do a deep dive into any of that content. So if you'd like to know more on a specific theme, I could actually do a whole episode on any of those themes that we've talked about today so do let me know if you want me to dig in into anything in any more detail so it's been really great spending the show with you i hope you've enjoyed it go out and really you know do some change making go for it have a go at at what you want get a plan together and go for it if i can help you in any way just get in contact with me and as i've said sign up for some of those free resources just fill your boots with as many as you like there's loads there it's www.bigbangpartnership.co.uk slash resources. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Time Show, brought to you by Dr. Joe North. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and access more completely free resources at bigbangpartnership.co.uk forward slash resources. We'll see you next time.